I don't use feeling terms. I don't use those types of terms. What I use is I say, I'm noticing. I'm noticing an undercurrent of frustration here. Can we talk about that? What's going on? And what starts happening is you invite in, you create an invitation for this other type of data to come into the room. Because if you're sensing that frustration, certainly other people are having that experience too. Welcome back to another episode of Everyday Leadership. And today I get to geek out because in the studio, I've got Dr. Ciela Hartner. Now she's a human behavior expert. She was part of the founding team of the Google School for Leaders and head of next practice innovation and strategy at Google. Now she is the founder and managing director of innovation and strategy for her firm, Harm Collective. She's also the author of a forthcoming book called Reclaiming Sensitivity. And in today's episode, we delve and geek out on mindset. As you all know, my company's called Mindset Shift and it's called that for a particular reason. We'll get to really delve into what it means to have a mindset shift, what it means to have a transformation. From a personal leadership, cultural perspective, we delve into the meaning of complexity, Buddhism, why fake it till you make it is actually not a bad idea. We talk about acting versus authenticity in the workplace. Why she decided to go and live in Denmark at the age of 15, having never left the US where she lived and why her parents actually said yes in the first place. We also talk about having one foot in and one foot out. We talk about identity, how your identity can keep you stuck can stop you from moving forward in life how it could hold you down and that identity could be linked to the title you might have i.e i'm the head of innovation at google can be linked to money it could be linked to society it can link to so many different things and of course we talk about leadership sit back relax you're gonna enjoy and you're gonna learn from today's episode from day leadership I'm always intrigued to learn the backstory of different people. So let's go back to a teenage Ciela. What did you want to be when you were younger? Such an interesting question. I don't know if I knew what I wanted to be. I know that's a common question. My parents never asked me that. My parents were hippies. And so it was always just be and do what feels native to you, what feels right to you. And so I was always interested in different cultures. I was an avid reader and thinker, and that has carried through, of course, into my adult life. You never shed that. So when I was a teenager, sometimes I look back at this moment and I think I cannot believe my parents allowed me to do this. But when I was 15, I put together a proposal to my parents, convincing them that I should go study abroad. And I had picked Denmark because I wanted to be close to Sweden, which is where part of my heritage is from. We still have relatives there. But I was too young to go to Sweden, and I didn't want to wait, which gives you a sense of my lack of patience. I didn't want to wait. So I thought, where's the closest place to Sweden? Okay, Denmark. So I put together a proposal and I pitched it to my mom and my dad. And for some unknown reason, at 15 years old, they let me go 
to Denmark and spend six months. And that was a really formative period of my life because two reasons, right? Of course, it was delving deep into a different culture and a different way of being. And whenever you do that, your mindset changes, you see the world differently. It's a super powerful experience. And it also made me realize the level of both autonomy that I could have at such a young age and that when I would want something enough, I can make it happen. 15-year-old traveling to a different continent, were you scared or it was just pure excitement? Why Denmark? <laughs> just Well, I just wanted to go to Scandinavia. So Denmark was a great option for that. And was I scared? I don't think I was scared. And part of the reason for that was I didn't have any benchmark around why I would be scared. I think um, when something is new and there's no one else who's done it, I didn't know anyone else who had studied abroad. All I had was this level of excitement around it. And I started meeting other people who, through this organization that I was going on abroad with, started meeting other people who were deciding to do the same thing. And so my whole network just expanded into these other type of people who were interested in the same thing as me. So it really just led to this real level of excitement before going. When I arrived, however, about two months into the experience, I was very, very homesick. And I remember talking to my mom and I had been calling her a lot and I was really homesick. My mom is a very sensitive, wonderfully emotionally attuned mother. And yet at this time she said to me, she said, Ciel, you have to make a choice. You either have to be fully in and fully there or you need to come home. But you can't be in the waffling and in the middle ground. And I remember her saying that to me and it clicked. I thought, I have to be here if I'm going to do this. And so at that point I made the choice, okay, I'm going to go fully in and versus being on the fence about it. And my whole experience changed then because I really became embedded. I started learning the language. I made friends. I went on my first date ever (laughs) at 15 in Denmark. So that moment really changed my orientation about when you choose something, being on the fence does no favors to anyone involved. That's a really, really powerful lesson to learn and have at such a young age. And I think it's also important. There's there two things that you actually mentioned that really, really resonated. One was around, like you said, prior to you starting to look into this, it looked like you were the only one. And then you start looking into this and you find a different a community. And so many times we think there's no one doing this and it's going to be lonely. But then when you start really, really delving into and feeling that curiosity, you can find there's so much more out there because you never thought about it, explored it. But then being, like you said, being one foot in, one foot out in anything never moves you forward. It just keeps you stuck. So making that decision to fully commit to something and commit to a direction is really, really important. Yeah, and I found that through my entire life and even building Hum Collective as a founder, there's no such thing as being one foot in and one foot out. And I remember early on when I started Hum Collected, Collective, I had a friend of mine who sent me a job um, posting, and this job was amazing. It looked like a perfect job for me, a head of a research laboratory studying the future of work. 
which is essentially what I do inside Hum Collective. And I had this moment where I thought, wow, look at this job. It's ideal for me. It could be perfect. And I remembered what I had learned, which is, no, I can't be entertaining this idea that there's a job out there inside a company that's right for me if I really want to be building Hum Collective. And it was a good moment for me very early on in the process of being a founder to recommit. Um, Similar moment in Denmark. It was that moment where I said, I can't be on the fence. I can't be entertaining other job opportunities inside organizations if I'm trying to build my own. It's hard to do though, isn't it? When you're building something new like an organization or you have so many opportunities available to you, that fear of if I say no to that or if I go all in in one particular thing, what does that do to me? Does that limit my options? That can really keep us spinning our wheels and keep us stuck. So how have you learned, apart from the words that your mom gave you, to be able to, I'm going to say, let go of those other distractions and the noise and focus instead? I mean, that's such a big question, right? I don't know if I've perfected that yet. But what I try to do effectively or not, different people could be the judge, I suppose, is remember what I'm doing here and reorienting to to my, you could call it my vision, my purpose. For me, I'm a yoga practitioner and I study Buddhism. So for me, it's about my dharma, if you want to use that term. Like, what am I here in the world to do? And reorienting to that. Because for me, at this stage in my life, work is not just about showing up at a job. It's about what is my work in the world? What is my dharma? What is my purpose? And if I can continue to reorient to that, then I know the choices that I need to be making along the way. And it doesn't feel so much like giving up opportunity as finding the right opportunities and the right steps and the right movement to get me closer to my life's work. How long have you practiced Buddhism for? Gosh, I don't know if I, w- I wouldn't claim that I practice. I learned. I'm learning. I'm curious about Buddhism. <laughs> it's been many years now, probably about 10 years that I've been wondering about and loosely practicing. But the principles have been something that's been very helpful to help you make decisions and to walk in alignment of that vision that you have from what you want to put out in the world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not so much in terms of a religion or a faith. I view Buddhism, Hinduism, yoga as all a way of life and much more of sort of a spiritual practice that aligns you to intent, purpose, patience, present moment, all these things that I think are hard to obtain in a world full of distraction and opportunity. We have to find some way to build that personal stability and resilience in ourselves to stay the course. And that's what these practices give to me. And one of the things that research tells us is that when we are in these moments of great complexity or transformation, you have to find a stable place to come back to. Human beings cannot be fully in transformation and uncertainty. We can't fully jump into that. That's like the deep end of the pool. So what we need is to find ways to practice our own stabilization 
And the way I do that is through the practices I just described, but other people could choose other things like regenerating with their family or exercise. It could be a whole different set of practices, but they need to be done regularly to find that solid ground. How do you define complexity? So that's a good question. I am not a complexity theorist, and I think I probably should ask you how you define complexity. (laughs) To switch it back around, I'll offer a point of view, but I would love to hear your illumination as well. I prefer to use the term emergence. And in my book, Reclaiming Sensitivity, I talk about emergence as the era that we are in, the emergent era. And when we think about emergence, there's a few ways to think about that. One is that there's a level of interconnection that we have to really work with. So everything is influencing everything else is a piece of emergence. And I would say, would argue is also a piece of complexity. And of course, COVID is the most salient example of this level of interconnection in our worlds because everything impacted everything else in the context of of COVID. The other thing that's really important to think about in emergence, which is the term, like I said, I like to use, is that there's a dynamic influence. So one micro move can influence another piece of the puzzle and a piece of the system. So there's another piece of the puzzle there around this sort of, this dynamic movement that happens that we see a lot in nature. We see this in starlings, how they follow one another and how they fly. It's not because there's one leader. It's because there's an emergence that happens because they're all watching one another. So, so those are some of the components I think about when I think about complexity or emergence, whatever term we want to use. would love to hear your point of view, though, too. What would you add? I'm very much aligned and linked to what you call emergence. I see... I very much use complexity and that's Dave Snowden, Kinevin kind of model where it's about how do you navigate an unpredictable world? And that's where complexity comes from because it's things that we are not used to and things that are new and things that are coming out and we're trying to figure out how to deal with it. So, which goes back for me with that emergency is using COVID as an example, that was a complex thing to the world. And out of that emerged how do different governments, different nations, different individuals deal with something like that, which is happening to everyone. And there are so many good and bad things that have come out of that period, but that's the, that's complexity. It's been able to look at something and take a step back and be like, okay, this is happening. This is new. How are we going to deal with it? How does this affect the individual? How does this affect the collective? How does it affect the system? And that's why it's so complex because there's no defined way of approaching something like that. It's innovative, which goes back to some of the work that you've done in the past and you do right now at Home Lab. But it's how do you come up with a good, not even approach, but a good way of navigating that emergence that's real. Yeah. And I think there's some practices, of course, that can help with that when handling emergence and complexity. And yet, I also think it it needs to start from a mindset shift. The way we understand the world to be, the way we've been taught the world is, the way we've been taught to make progress, all of that starts at 
what we believe to be true. And that's what a mindset is. It's a sort of our worldview. It's our belief system. And our belief system has to shift in order for us to change and be different inside these emergent conditions. And that's what's really interesting to me right now is what is that mindset shift that needs to be made so that we aren't continuously caught off guard when these emergent conditions and moments happen. Because if you look at things like climate change, we are going to start seeing more and more of these emergent aspects and that are going to impact supply chains, business models, livelihoods, well, just life, like how we live our lives. What's the mindset that we need to be holding so that it doesn't feel so destabilizing all the time and that we're able to work with it versus fight against it? But do you think a recognition is required from people that this is a mindset shift that needs to happen, or even a recognition that we're not on stable ground, therefore they need to approach things with an emergent way of looking at things as opposed to what they've always done? Do I think there needs to be a recognition of that? I do. And I see some leaders that I see are starting to realize that because they keep trying to name the truth and here's how we're going to move forward. And then they keep having to remig on that. And so I've been working with some leaders who lately who have just realized that they can't name what the next step is or what the truth of this situation is or what we're going to do here or set the vision. What they've started to realize is, oh, I just need to create a holding ground. I need to work with and not try to predict, but adjust and help be a wayfinder for the people that are following me. And I also need to follow them. And so it becomes more of a dynamic relationship. And I've started to see just because it's been so difficult to be a leader during these times that the mindset shift is happening because there's been a forcing mechanism. So the longer we're in these emergent patterns, I think we're going to start people seeing the mindset shift just because it's been forced. What I'm advocating for is why don't we do that before there's a forcing mechanism so that it doesn't have to be so painful. So I think this way of thinking, we can talk about it, we can teach it, we can build practices to activate it inside ourselves. So let's do that now versus waiting for the next catalytic event. Is it possible to know when a transformation has actually taken hold of someone and that mindset shift has really happened as opposed to doing something because it's in the moment. So for example, there are some leaders who during the pandemic, they came out, they were fully support their people and they were talking a good game and they were taking some actions. But now two years later, they've kind of reversed back to the old ways of working because it feels a lot more comfortable. And that's created some frictions within some organizations that I've seen and worked with as well. So how can you tell when someone is really taking hold of that transformation and is on that path that you just described as opposed to, I don't want to use pretending, but that's the only word that kind of comes yeah, to mind right yeah. now, but it's in the moment. That's, that's what they're mm-hmm. doing. It's fun that you asked this question because I did a research study while I was still at Google about transformation and how you know someone's made a mindset shift. And it's actually really hard to codify from the outside. It's like, you know, if you're in your own body and a mindset shift has, has happened for you, it's only you who really knows because 
you can't go back to the way you were before. And I think all of us have had moments like that where either through a catalytic event or um, something that has changed you, changed fundamentally what you believe about the world. And then you know, I can no longer be the way I was before. So I think we all probably can recognize that there's been moments like that for us. and But we only know that inside ourselves. And then our behavior starts to demonstrate that. And so the way we know that someone's made that mindset shift to your point is they don't go back to the way they were before because there's no back there anymore. And so when we see leaders who are acting their way through this moment, but they haven't fundamentally changed the way they see the world, they haven't changed. It's easier to actually see when people haven't changed than when they have, which is what you're demonstrating there. And I think it's yet to be seen how many leaders have actually evolved and changed during this time. I think it would be a big waste if we didn't use this moment to change the way we structure work, to change the way we understand leadership, to change the way fundamentally just we are as societies and with one another. But it remains to be seen. The other thing I'll say about knowing if someone's just faking it is there is a lot of research about fake it till you make it. So I wouldn't say that faking it is a bad idea. It's the start of being able to change your mind. So if you look, there's a lot of research around, for instance, actors. And those actors who are more successful at embodying their character, they're the ones who actually take on, it's hard to describe, but they take on pieces of the identity of the role that they're playing. So they're faking it. They're taking on these pieces and they're faking being this. That's what acting is. And those actors who are the most compelling actually start to embody pieces of this identity. We see this um, also in leadership, whereby if you start behaving a certain way, it starts to change what you believe about the world and the mindset that's underlying it. So I am okay with people faking it, as long as they fake it long enough that they change on the inside. That's a very interesting perspective that I guess I've not thought about. I always think about when you think about faking it, the inauthenticity for me, always like, well, if you're not going to be real about this, you're more than likely going to create more damage than good because if you fake something long enough and you change, then the change happens. Therefore, there is no damage there because you've been changed by your circumstances and situations and you've taken that persona fully. But if you fake it and people believe in you and believe in that leader, and then that person now starts to exhibit a lot of characteristics which are either not aligned to that anymore and the actor has come off and then the real person has emerged, you get a lot of what we're seeing now with people leaving their their jobs and looking at what life's about and examining that because they're sick and tired of working in those kind of environments where the authenticity is not there. It's just a lot of acting, which is why I really love the way you said acting. It's a lot of acting and they're sick and tired of that. It's like, no, I want to step out of a movie. I want to re- live a real life. Like, you can't give me that reality, that real life, that I don't want to be a part of that anymore. Yeah, I think this goes back to intention. So are you acting 
into this way of being so that you can get more out of people? Is it sort of a, a ploy for more engagement? Is it a ploy? What are you using it for? Or is the intention to fake your way through so that you can really be different? And if I think about to the simple example about when I was in Denmark and my mom said, you need to be in or you need to be out. I didn't just flip a switch. I faked it. I faked that I was happy. I faked that I was in it. I faked that probably for an entire month. But it wasn't because I was trying to do a Jedi mind trick on anybody that I was interacting with. I was trying to convince myself that I could do this, that I could be happy here. And so my intent in sort of faking being in it was that I was going to get in it. Versus if your intent is to simply to fake it as a leader and then do a switcheroo at some point, right? That's very different. So I think when we think about sort of faking our way through, it has to be with some sort of intention that is positive. Which takes me back to even the conversation we're having around values. If you're value aligned and you're a value aligned person, you're saying, I'm not where I need to be, but I know where I want to get to. And therefore, I want to start acting that way because I see that's going to pull me into that. That's value alignment as opposed to your values are not aligned and it's just performance. You're just acting because you're trying to get influence or get over someone. And that's completely different. I think so. And it goes back to only you, the actor, the leader, know that. So this is where we talk and start thinking about coming back into integrity with yourself so that you have that stable ground from which to transform. And this is why I think in terms of the inner work is becoming more and more critical inside organizations, because this is the only place that we can move from. And I write a lot in my book, Reclaiming Sensitivity, about the sensing self and how do we come back to our ability to make sense of ourselves, to make sense of the world around us, to be in tune with other people. That is all native to this human condition, but it's been stripped outside out of organizations for efficiency and for industrial era outcomes. And we have to move past that. But it's not like we're reinventing something new. We're reclaiming something that's native to us, this sensitive perception. It's inside of us. And if we look inside our inner awareness, we can be sensitive to what we are inside as well as who the people are around us. For me, that sounds very much like you understanding and gaining either new level of self-awareness or self-awareness, generally speaking. But I've also read somewhere, I'm trying to remember where it's from now. I think you talked about self-awareness. You talked about there is, um, was it, there's no such thing as self-awareness and there's, there's something around that. So I spent a lot of people like, that sounds like self-awareness, but I'm sure I've heard you say there's no such thing as self-awareness. So So what does that mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny you bring that up because I'm a a yes and to that. And of course, this is one of the paradoxes and complexity where we deal with paradox, right? Is that there's no such thing as self-awareness outside of the context of a social container. This is a sociologist's point of view, and I'm a cultural psychologist by training. So what that means is that I'm blending anthropology, psychology, sociology, and I'm trying to take all these different lenses to help us understand the human condition. So I think it's important for me to frame 
that that's my orientation. So a psychological orientation would say, yes, self-awareness, do your inner work, know who you are. A sociologist would say, but who you are is always inside a context. And so you can't have full understanding of who you are unless you are seeing how you're situated in the world and what other people are saying about you and who you are. So I don't believe in the construct of self-awareness as a psychological embodiment in and of itself. We, come, we become aware of ourselves by pushing off around what other someone else sees about us or how we act and show up in a situation. And then we know, I'm out of integrity because that didn't feel right. That interaction didn't feel right. So I'm of the philosophy that we have to have both self and other awareness to deepen our own self-awareness, that you have to be there. And I talk about this in, in one of the chapters where I talk about the sensing self. It's the, the navel gazing is not enough. It's important. It's a component, but it's not sufficient. How important is it to feed off the opinions of other people? In fact, let me rephrase that. Is your internal self-awareness, your internal dialogue, your internal opinion of yourself more important than what other people might say or think? Mm. It depends. Depends on the context of it. And I think if you're harming someone else and you don't know it and you don't believe it, but the other person is indicating to you that something is harmful to them, of course, they have a responsibility to understand their part in that puzzle. But I do think it's critical, especially in a leadership position, to pay attention when someone is saying, the way you're being in this environment is harmful to me. You need to note that and not just put it aside and say, this is who I am. That's really dangerous. But when it comes back to finding your own alignment with your own integrity and your dharma, then you have to stick closely to that. And this is why this notion of self-awareness, other awareness, feedback, these are way more complex than we give them credit for. And so I'm working with a client right now on candor and feedback. And where we're starting is, what is your own personal processing of when someone shares something with you? How do you use it? What's your automatic sort of orientation to it? Do you take it as truth? Do you automatically reject it? Do you listen to it and grapple with it? Like, what do you do with it? And there's no one right answer, but you need to know where you're starting from so that you can expand your range out of how you're using those external um, inputs. So it's not an easy answer of, you know, prioritize your own self-understanding over other people's understanding. It's all contextual. And so what I think a lot about when we think about self-development is range. How do you get more range so you have more choices? So then you can be more intentional about how you use that feedback from other people and where it aligns and where it doesn't. So that's my long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you play a lot in the paradox and polarity of that and, which is really, really good. When you were talking earlier on around certain things that we've been, have been stripped away from us, that kind of came back to mind around polarities, how we're so used to seeing things in opposites or seeing things in verses, but actually 
if we were to look at certain things in a paradox way, in the fact that there is an alignment, in the fact that you're holding two things which can seem opposite, but actually they're not, they're mutually benefit. How can you hold that inside yourself and use that to help guide you and then also use that to help to relate to other people? I mean, this podcast, for example, it's got the polarity of leading self and leading others because of that intentionality of holding both of those two things equally at the same time. I like that you mentioned that because someone asked me something the other day, like, what do you really stand for? <laughs> I said, well, I'm on a crusade to bring back nuance because I think that's what we need right now. We need critical thinking that is built on nuance. How else can we make our way through? For someone who is, you're very, you have a lot of data and research behind you. You also hold a lot of, I want to say, sensing information. And you hold both those two things really, really well. But generally speaking, how can someone who doesn't have a data background, but has a lot of feeling and sense lean into that more? Because we live in a world where it's like, oh, it's not backed up with data. Don't bring it out. Don't talk about it. But actually, that's an element of us. We as individuals, that's also very, very important. Yeah. I would say continue to be courageous in naming those things because other people also are having these intuitions, the sixth sense. We all have the sixth sense. That has been proven. So I can show you the data around that if that's useful, but we all have that, but (laughs) not all of us. Yeah, not all of us are able to be sensitive enough to it. And so... What I would say to those who do have more sensitive perception and it's more acute is to continue to bring that into the room. And I often will do that about, and I don't say, I don't use feeling terms. I don't use those types of terms. What I use is I say, I'm noticing. I'm noticing an undercurrent of frustration here. Can we talk about that? What's going on? And what starts happening is you invite in You create an invitation for this other type of data to come into the room. Because if you're sensing that frustration, certainly other people are having that experience too. So starting from the frame of I'm noticing, I'm sensing, gives the invitation to others to also bring this through. This though is a courageous act. Here's the statistics that tells us 5% of the time we're frustrated here. It's more of an embodiment, and so just keep doing it. There will be more receptivity to this over time, I am certain, because there's not a lot of clear-cut answers anymore. And so what you're offering is a different lens, a different data point that can help unlock something. So if you keep doing it, I can imagine that people are going to start coming more and more to you for this type of data and this type of knowing. If you're in an organization that doesn't have psychological safety and it's still a very, I'm guessing what you're anti, very old school, traditional way of operating and leading where you've got that command and control and effect and it's still very bullish, boisterous, male-dominated, having these kind of like, trying to invite that into that kind of environment is not the easiest thing to do. In fact, it's almost impossible to do. But yet, you're having these feelings inside of you. How can you navigate a space like that 
where you're feeling you have to present something which is not necessarily true to the values or that you have inside of you. This is not going to be a popular answer. Um, (laughs) If you can, in terms of your own livelihood, find another place to be to bring your gifts, I would say do that. If you can't, that's another different type of conversation where what is the smallest viable product for you to be in integrity inside this organization? That is a very hard quest to find because the organization and the system around you is going to constrain you. That's a sociologist point of view, and that's, that's the way things are. So where can you find a small pocket to nudge at? Where can you find a way to continue to be in, in integrity with yourself, even if you can't voice these pieces of yourself? That's a personal sort of inquiry and often what coaching can help with to help you figure out how you can remain whole inside of this organization. That's a lot of what we've been doing is duct taping, helping people be okay inside an organization that's dysfunctional. So what I'm advocating more and more for now is more of a radical departure. And I think we see that in the great reshuffling resignation, whatever you want to call it. And I think what we're going to start seeing over time is that people will leave to build organizations that can hold this new way. So find the new way and find those people who are on the new way and team up with them and be in their organizations so that we can take out the air from these old school organizations versus trying to just recreate something inside a broken system. And I said, this might not be a popular opinion. And it's the same. I was having this conversation with someone recently where I said, we need more diverse people, more women to build their own businesses. And let's go and be in those businesses rather than trying to retrofit the C-suite at an old school organization. That is where we are likely to get more change. Now, I'm not saying let's not do the other parts, but we need a more of a groundswell that's going to force the old school organizations to be different. Feel free to disagree with me. Actually, I, I don't. I actually don't disagree because I'm, I'm so unaware. I believe that if you're in an environment that is toxic, that's not good for you. Mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, it's just not good for you. And you operating there continuously trying to change something which doesn't want to be changed because people don't want to change. They're not going to change. If you recognize that and you see that I'm a big advocate of, of get out. I, I strongly have I've been in those experiences myself when I worked in corporate many years ago. I'm like, I'm not going to stay here because it's not good for me. And for someone, especially where my values are very much aligned around authenticity, integrity, and also being in service to my family. If I'm going into an environment that makes any of those values change or, sh- or be reshaped, I don't want that. I don't want to come home and be angry, upset, or not be able to spend time with my wife and my kids because of something that's happening in a, in a toxic environment. I want to be able to be of service to my family. So I got out of that environment. And it's very much similar to what we're seeing now where people are leaning into what you can call the Dharma. People are leaning more into the, who am I? What kind of 
world and life do I want to have both personally and professionally? What kind of work do I want to be putting out in the world? And if all those different filters they're looking at life through are not aligned to the organizations they're operating in, then they're leaving and they're doing exactly what you said. Let's create our own. But that's not always easy because it goes back into, I might have the title, I might have the money, I might have so many of those other things that have already been created. Separating your identity from those things is, as you all know, the work that we both do is just not the easiest thing to do. It's not easy at all. And I wouldn't claim that it is. Identity is such um, an important facet of how we are in the world. And questioning identity is at the heart of transformation, but it's the hardest part because it's where it is where the stability comes from. It's how we understand ourselves. It's how we make sense of ourselves. So when you start working at that level, um, you can unlock a lot, but it also feels completely destabilizing if you don't have the right support around you, I would say. When you made the decision to to leave Google, how was that for you? Because that's a great organization, great position, all those different things that play for you. Yeah, I think identity was definitely at play. And I have a podcast, we're on hiatus right now, but one of the first episodes we did on questioning work was, who am I at work and who decides? And that episode was me in the middle of my identity unraveling from being a Googler. So if you want to know what it was really like, that episode is pretty raw because I was right in the middle of it. And I spent about four months intentionally working with how do I make sense of myself outside of the context of being at Google? Because when you join an organization like Google, for better or for worse, they have a lot of ways to make you feel part of this thing. And it feels like this exclusive club that all of a sudden you get to belong to and your identity starts to be built inside this organization. And I remember as I was leaving, I had one person say to me, you know, I don't even know what I would be without Google. And for me, that's a bit of a red flag because we shouldn't be so tied into an organization who at any point can make a choice to, to let you go. We have to find some other way to hold our identities. This is the shadow side of things like employee engagement. We have to be careful of that. But for me, it took time. And I had to go back to what I just what I talked about before is getting in touch with my integrity and what I'm meant to be doing in this world. And that's why I left, because I knew I could be of service in a different way and in a wider way if I wasn't inside the walls of Google. And I knew that. And it was scary to leave the comfort of that. But I knew deep down inside of me that I needed to. And I also would say, the way I think about decisions and choices is you give it a good try. And then if it doesn't work, you can always make a new choice. So I also give myself that grace too. Like I'm fully in. I'm building Hum Collective. That is what I'm doing. I'm finishing up this book and we'll release it. That's what I'm doing. I'm fully in. 
And if there comes a point where this choice is no longer working for me, I don't have to tie my horse to it forever. And so I give myself that grace, and I hope other people will do that too. Because that that offers just a little bit of relief when you're making some big, big, bold moves. Yeah, it does. I think it's something that a lot of us generally forget. We think when we make a choice, that's it. And I think even that can keep us stuck. There was a diagram created not so long ago. And there's someone who has had so many different roads they can go down and they spent so much time contemplating and they went from being young to being old and they hadn't moved. Yeah. Because they were just stuck by the amount of choice. But you could have gone down that road and come back and gone, well, you've tried something, you've come back, that hasn't worked. But you're moving in a particular direction. That's progress. And along that journey, you're learning so much. That's why I love when you said that, you know what? I can go down that road. I'm going to release the book. And if I want to change, I can also do that. But you're being very, very intentional and focused on on where you're, what direction you are moving in right now, which is so important. And I think it's part of what we talk about in complexity, which is having a direction, not a destination. And if we start thinking about that, like directionally, how am I moving and what steps am I taking? And am I being active? but also patient (laughs) at the same time to get wherever I'm going. And I have found that that is the founder path is this notion of active patience, which I just learned about recently um, from Shane Parrish, who has the podcast, The Knowledge Project, which is one of my favorites. And he had a newsletter recently that three people sent to me. I had already read it, but it was about active patience. And I thought, oh, okay, people are sending this to me. So it must be what I'm up to right now, what I'm doing, which is having patience that the long-term outcome will arrive. But the only places that you can make movement is in the now and to do those micro movements and to be active. Yes, but not forcing. And so that's the patience part. And I think we've lost that, the patience to really build something that matters. It's not going to happen overnight. It takes me back. I remember when I, when I first started and left corporate recently this year and started my company. And there was a period of time where things looked like they weren't moving forward. And I'm very much like, so I'm a, I'm a faith-driven person. And I was kind of like, Lord, like, what's, what's going on? <laughs> Nothing yeah. seems to be going the way I wanted to. But the only thing I had control over was me moving and taking, taking action and being patient that they all, those seeds will, some of the seeds will harvest in the right season. Like you don't plant and harvest in the same season. And that active patience is so hard, but it's so necessary because it cultivates so much. We learn so much in the delay, in the patience, in the waiting, but also in, it's not passive waiting, it's active waiting. That's why I loved what you said about right. active patience. I love your example because this is why I think sometimes it's hard to leave corporate is because you get into this space where you have to have active patience and trust. And so in some ways, it's easier to stay inside a corporation, which basically tells you what to do. (laughs) And it feels like you're making movement because there's OKRs and there's goal setting and it's like (laughs) it's an illusion, of always making progress. And I think even in corporate, we need to start unraveling that so that we can build more emergent strategies so we can have more active patients inside a corporation as well, not just for those who are going off and founding something. 
as I mentioned, I'm very interested in the concept of emergence. I think we're in the emergent era. And the corollary to that would be building inside organizations the ability to do emergent strategy. And by that, where you have a, a view around where you're trying to get, but you're, you're loosely attached. And so your planning efforts actually become much more adaptive over time. And I think this is how we deal with when, when emergent circumstances arrive. If you have built more of an emergent strategy process, you're always scanning, you're watching what's happening, you're noticing. Those people who are having those you know, sensory perceptions, they're bringing that into the conversation. There's a place for that because they're saying, I sense something's happening here. And you're always in this active conversation of noticing and then you're adjusting. Okay, so then we should make maybe this micro move or this micro move. And what you get then is more of an ability to handle the complexity. And it starts becoming sort of almost like a wave. You know, there's an ebb and flow and things are unfolding versus like a hard driving to sort of an end state that you don't even know if, you, if that end state's the right one three years from now. So I'm, I'm working a lot now with how do we build more of this way of being inside an organization. And I think at the simplest and more, most practical level, it starts with how we use our meetings and how we talk to one another. So are these meetings status meetings? Are they, here's all the things I did to get to, the, to be on plan? Or could it be a different type of conversation, which is a noticing meeting? Everyone comes in and shares what they're noticing. And there's one organization who anticipated and adjusted uh, um, before COVID. And I can't remember the name of the or this organization. I wish I could. But they have this sort of noticing practice inside their meetings. And when they had one person very early on who brought in a noticing, oh, something's happening in China, I heard on the news. There's something going on about a virus or something. I don't know what it really is. So they have a whole section of their meeting, which was just like a noticing, and then they would do whatever else they wanted to do inside that meeting. But they would circle back to these early signals. That's what they're called in foresight, these early signals. And because someone had named that, they were already tracking that long before other organizations were. So because of that, they started, I think they started changing their supply chain. They started doing stuff earlier because they were noticing that something was happening before it, it actually hit and caused a huge disruption to their business. So that's a good example of what it means to have more of an emergent practice and approach. Yeah, ordinating things loosely. So when you need to change and pivot, you can. And I'm definitely curious to find out more about that organization because there's a department that goes back to the, what we're talking about earlier on around how can organizations and cultures, especially the ones that have been here for a very long time, change and create this kind of environment where it's about noticing rather than doing what's always been done because we've done this for the last 100 to 150 years and it seems to be working, but the world has changed. So how can those organizations go along with that change and leaders in particular recognize you can't lead on the certainty anymore. You need to learn how to navigate in the complexity, in the uncertain, by having a direction. Yeah, do you have any thoughts on the way in? I have a few, but what have you been working with? What I've been working with is using a mixture of the changing in demographics. 
that's been one that's been quite good actually listening to changing cultures, changing generations, what's relevant and what's real. I've also been able to use actually some of the data around the pandemic, which is show that organizations in particular, which can tend to take two to four years to make a massive change. They did that in six weeks by cutting a lot of the red tape out. So well, if you manage to transform the way you work, which normally takes you two to five years and a lot of money in six weeks with a smaller team, how did you do that? And why was that possible? Or why did you think that was impossible before this? So using things like that, using the data, those kind of data sets that have come out of the pandemic, you can go into certain spaces and places and utilize that. Some of it has also been around using some of the great resignation, reset, whatever great, great you want to use. This is why people are leaving. Yeah. This is what's real. This is what's on the ground for them. And for a lot of times, people have used money as their tool. It's a lot of want to give you more money. Well, money only reaches, and I'm saying this for a point of privilege, but it only reaches so much. After a certain point, especially the leaders that we're working with, that level doesn't really have that much impact on them. It's bigger than that. So what can you do to actually create that space for them to be able to be innovative and to be able to sense into certain things and bring those elements of themselves into your work culture? I like these strategies a lot, using the case to say, you can't say it's impossible because you did it. And then uncovering the practices inside of that. What did you do? That's nice because it gives a real tangible truth to what they've already done. And so it doesn't feel so far off. Because I think when we talk about change, it can feel so overwhelming. And the way we talk about things like digital transformation and it's always seems so huge. So what I'm thinking about more and more is where are sort of the pockets of the network effect? Let's bring it down to the smaller ways that change can happen versus thinking about large-scale transformation. And I think this does relate to sort of complexity theory, which is sort of about nudging the system versus trying to get to wholesale change. So I think about things like, to your point, where might have there been pockets inside an organization which are already adaptive or have already figured out tools to managing emergence? How are they talking to one another? How are they having meetings? What does it look like inside that subculture? And what can we learn from those pockets? Because I think it's those pockets that are going to start laddering up to a wider shift inside an organization. That's one view, which is more of sort of the, the nudging view. The other view, of course, that we often bring to the table as organization development practitioners is who's sitting at the top of the house and the top of the leadership. And do you need to make some moves there to model in a different way? I'm a bit on the fence right now because I think in a hybrid work environment, we don't see leader, these leaders as much. So what they're modeling or not modeling may not matter as much because there's a vacuum there. So I'm starting to believe more and more that really in the hybrid work environment where we're on Zoom and we're meeting each other this way, the way I understand the world and how to make change and progress is just in the five people that I meet with regularly. So we're moving really down to sort of these nodes more and more in the hybrid work environment. So that requires a shift around how we use those nodes. 
So that's a lot about what I've been thinking about. And right now I'm running a study on connection and culture in this new work era. And some of that idea around using these smaller nodes is coming to the surface in the research. This research project isn't fully done, so I don't know yet all of the the pieces of the puzzle, but I'm interested to find out. I'm definitely interested to read that. It will be very good to see what your data reveals. Was there thoughts and ideas that come to mind, but I'm like, still, I want to see this. And that statement you just made around the hybrid way of working and that vacuum being there is a very interesting one because on one hand, I completely understand and I buy into that. And on the other hand, there's a whole representation where regardless of whether you see all those leaders, when you look up on your org chart or whatever it is, is that representation is not there. It doesn't necessarily drive you forward or give you that impetus to be like, oh yeah, we can really do something here because that's not changed. So now becomes, well, if that's not really changing, do I really feel I can make an impact and a difference here? Or going back to what we talked about, do I need to pull out and go and look for my people and my community who are all value aligned, who can do something different as well? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great point. Even just an organization modeling by creating more diversity and leadership it is a really powerful move, even if you don't see those people very often. Because you see it on the org chart, to your point. And an org chart is an artifact of an organization and helps you make sense of how this organization is and what they value. So I'm completely in alignment with that. I think where the modeling that we don't see is, you know, less hallway conversations. We don't see how people are really outside of a Zoom room. When's your book coming out? It'll be out early next year. How are you finding the writing? (laughs) I love this question. As any creative finds it equally frustrating and illuminating. (laughs) I've had to relearn how to write. And that's been fascinating for me. Having been in corporate for a very long time, I've learned how to package things quickly in snippets. At Google, we call them TLDRs, which is too long, do not read. So you give, you know, the three word answer to the question, but then you give all the background that no one reads later. So what I've had to relearn is to be a creative and to be a critical thinker. And that has been a process. I was telling a friend yesterday that early in the writing process, I would take long, long walks in the afternoon to process, to think before I could write. And at first I felt really guilty about this because I thought I'm wasting time. You know, we all have this progress demon behind us being like, why aren't you don't have enough pages yet? Where are the, where's the word count? But I couldn't get to that place unless I created space for thinking. And the way I did that is I would go on these long, long walks. And I would imagine that other people who are writers or creatives who are more skilled than I am, probably have a set of practices that they've developed, perhaps similar, that gives them space. So that's been the writing process. And I would say writing is equally writing as it is revision. So right now I'm in revision. And revision is where the ideas really start to crystallize and come alive. And that's a whole different process as well. Well, I can't wait to read the book think there are a number of things that you've alluded to today, which 
I'm looking forward to delving into deeper in around that internal, that person who's driving forces and how that flows into organizations. After you've read it, we can talk more about it. And I look forward to having you read it as well. And I'm already doing keynotes and workshops about the topics. So also happy to share that with you or others who might be interested in, in doing the work now versus waiting. And I guess my last question to you, because we can keep on talking. <laughs> We've got so much to talk about. But last one see you will be, how do you define leadership? I define leadership as multifaceted. I think that's the most important way to think about leadership is that it's a lens against how you're showing up in any circumstance, in any situation. And the tools of leadership need to be multifaceted. So you, we lead ourselves and how we're leading our own choices in the world we lead others um, and we come in and out of that role. It doesn't have to be bestowed on you. If you're a parent, you are a leader. I'm the leader of the cooking in my household. So that's my job. And so how you come in to being a leader when it is your turn, I think really matters. And then the other part of leadership that I don't think is talked about enough is followership. So when do you know to step behind and be a guide, be a support, or be a follower? How and when do you do that? So I think more and more about leadership, less as a title that's bestowed on you, more to a role, a capacity that we step into when it's our time. Really, really powerful definition of it. And thank you. Thank you very much for today, this conversation. It's been really, it's been great just talking to you and learning about the way that you think, the way that you approach things and that experience you've had in different organizations, people that you've worked with, but how you're actually following and pursuing that Dharma. I think it's rare that you find people talking about, actually, there's a, there's a new path and journey ahead of me and I want to bring something different and I'm willing to take that risk in the direction of that. And if it doesn't work out, I'll find something, I'll navigate completely differently. That's so important that people need to hear that more. So really, thanks for sharing that. Thank you for having me. It's been a real pleasure. This is Everyday Leadership. I'll see you next week.